I want to welcome tonight um, Mr. Jack. It's good to have you, my brother. Uh, it, it was so interesting. We went to a garage sailing, garage buying, and it was, it was fun. We walked into this one house, and, and Jack was there. It was his house, and he just gave away stuff. I'm like, do you want to make any money, man? He gave away Bibles. Let's just take it. I'll just take this. You know? So it's wonderful to have you here tonight, Jack. God bless you. God bless you. All right, so um, we are walking through the book of Acts. I saw this morning, by the way, that um, the, uh, the honeymoon phase is over with us being here. Um, the, um, the, um, the accent is no longer keeping people away. I saw two oaks sleeping this morning. It's okay, I know your names. Don't forget Moses 3 verse 16. You remember that? Thou shalt not sleep in the church. No, I'm just joking. Don't worry. You're allowed to sleep. I know sometimes it's, it's boring. Okay, we are in the book of Acts. We are walking through it. I thought studying through the book of Acts would be fun for us. If you like to study the Bible and just learn it, you know, grapple with it from one point to another. I thought Sunday nights are pretty nice. You have um, people who'd like to think maybe a little bit more through the Bible. If you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be dealing with verses 15 to 26. Um, so if you'd like to study it with me, great. I mean, read it through the week, and on Sunday night, I'll say a few things about it. You'll have different things, maybe things you can teach me about it. That's fine. At least we get the Holy Spirit moving through the text and changing our, our lives. I just want to summarize just quickly what I said last week and what I sort of uh, extracted from the text last week is that Jesus sort of, um, you know, Luke tells us the, about those, about the time that Jesus spent with his disciples before he went up to heaven. So he's resurrected from the dead. It's about a 40-day period um, that he appears to his disciples. And the text, and in, you, you pick up sort of in the text that Peter and the apostles, they were expecting Jesus, the one that just risen from the dead, that he's going now to restore the kingdom of Israel. They were under pressure of the Roman Empire, and he was hoping that, okay, Jesus the Messiah, because that's what the prophecy said, that Jesus the Messiah would liberate the Israelites from the Romans. That's what they're expecting. And Jesus is like, no, that's not really going to happen. Um, you see, Jesus had a bigger plan than that. And the prophecies in the Old Testament wasn't about Israel. It wasn't about physical Israel. It was about spiritual Israel. And Jesus is like saying, no, no, no. You guys just go to Jerusalem. You relax there. And I'm going to send you some weapons. The Greek word is uh, dynamite, dunamis. He says, I'm going to give you power that's going to come from above. And you guys, you're going to be my witnesses throughout the whole world. And we're going to begin in Jerusalem. We're going to go into Judea and Samaria. And you, so Jesus is essentially saying, you guys want to establish the kingdom of Israel? No, 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 no. We're going to establish a kingdom that's going to spread throughout the earth. And I'm going to give you all the weapons necessary. The dunamis, this, the, um, the power of the Holy Spirit. Any country that wants to establish an empire, take over other countries, what do they need? They need weapons. Jesus was the conclusion of last week's lesson. Jesus desires to take over the world. He wants to spread his kingdom. And his kingdom is unique because it defies boundaries. And it defies language. Isn't that interesting? And we see in chapter 2 as the Spirit gives them this tool, this powerful tool of language. And says you'll defy the boundaries of different races with language through the Spirit. Which is incredible. So the book of Acts is a military conquest. That's what it is. 
It's a military conquest. How does God take over the world? How does he establish his empire to the ends of the earth? As Daniel says, it's a rock that falls onto the ground, smashes the statue to pieces, and then the rock mutates into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And indeed, the kingdom has filled the whole earth. Here I am, a South African, other side of the country. I'm standing in America. You guys are in the kingdom. I was in the kingdom of South Africa. I've got friends. We spoke to them this week. They are in New Zealand. Do you know where that is? That's like in nowhere's land. That's where Mordor, you know, where the Lord of the Rings comes from. I mean, even there, the kingdom of heaven is. And we are part of this uh, kingdom. The text for tonight stimulated one question for me, um, which I think is difficult for us to deal with just practically in our lives. How do I know what God's will is for my life? How do I know what God's will is for my life? Like you're going to have lots of this, uh, Nate, before you fall asleep. So you're going to have lots of this in your life. Like how do you make decisions, bud? How do you decide? Because there's two girls that like me at school. Which one do I choose? How do I know what I must go study when I finish school? How do I know what's God's will? Is it Susie or Judy? Or is it University of Oregon? Or is it Michigan? Or should I go to the army? Or should I become a dentist? Oh, by the way, they say that uh, dentists don't become a dentist. They say it's the most depressed people. I have suicide rates, apparently. I'd probably do the same thing if I look at cavities all day. Now, um, so, so, so the question is, what is God's will that is to be done in a given situation. Like, for example, uh, should I marry this girl or, or not? Or asking God, should I get married or not? How do you know? Is it God's will for you to get married or not? Um, I sort of said, um, Lord, if ever somebody comes across my path that likes me, I'll know you want me to get married. Took a life, half my life, but eventually somebody came. Or should I buy a house? Should I buy this house or that house? How do you know? This, the story is told of a, of a family that said, they said, Lord, okay, so we don't know if we should buy this house. If you give us this house, if, if the, the seller agrees on the price that's half what they want to sell it for, and we get a loan from the bank, then we know for a fact you want us to buy this house. Lo and behold, guess what? The price was half, and the bank gave them a loan. And then a few years later down the line, the, the bank repossessed the house because they never paid the loan. Now, the question is this. What was God's answer in the beginning? Were they supposed to buy that house? Get how complicated it gets. How do we know? And I come across this often. I come across this often in my life. Because the scripture gives us some direction. But the scripture doesn't tell us specifics. There's no text that says, Machil, you need to marry Alfreda. There's no text that says, yes, Terry, buy the house down in Whiskey Butte. The text doesn't say that. There's no specifics. So how do we know um, what God's will is? I, I received a call this week from John Rochefort. I think that's his name, right? From Albany, Albany. Um, and he said, um, somebody phoned him from Africa. And it's interesting, when you come from Africa, then um, people assume you know everybody in Africa. <laughs> it's like somebody phones you from Argentina. You guys live in the Americas, right? So you know the guys in Argentina. Uh, it's the same thing. So this guy's from Kenya, and he phones, he's made contact with John over Facebook, and he says, 
listen, um, I need some help. I'm a Church of Christ preacher. Can you help me with finances? And he phones me and he says, do you know this guy? No, probably not. Do you, um, do you, do you think I should send him money or not? You know, he, he's asking some advice and, and that type of stuff. Now, now he's in a difficult position because what does the Bible say? Give to the one who asks. But, however, and the Bible says be generous. But there is no text that says, John Rochford, on the 4th of November 2022, you need to give Kobile Nkanka from Kenya $200. The Bible does not say that. So how do you make those decisions? We had a, a person uh, not too long ago that said that God told them to give us 11 silver coins. Now, I don't know how that relationship worked because I've never been in that type of situation, but specifically 11. And this person actually gave us the 11 silver coins. You know, I don't want to judge their relationship with God, but sometimes I wish I had that type of communication from God, wouldn't you? All right. Now, this is where prophets would have been great. And I think that's where the value of um, prophets were in the, in the Old Testament. But I know if you study the scriptures, then it is pretty clear that prophecies have ceased. And the idea of prophets who just can give us all of this information. And by the way, this is why prophecy is such a big thing in, the, in the, uh, some of the denominations where you, have, you go to the prophet, you pay him to tell you what you need to do in your life. And I hope that that has been sort of, I wish that was documented statistically, like whether those prophets were actually accurate in what they told you to do with your life, how that turned out in the long run. So the question then, then becomes, and this is something for us to think about, and I'm not going to answer it tonight. I'm sorry about this. I just want us to think and grapple with the text. But do we get confirmation from him before we act so blessings can flow? Or do we act in faith knowing that his blessings will flow based, based on our action in faith? In other words, and this is, this, I don't have the answer for you. you. You need to go think about this carefully. There's one that I lean more towards. Like, do I go to God and say, hey, Lord, what must I do? And then wait for confirmation. And then I do what I feel God says I must do. And then it will be blessed. Or do I make a decision? Knowing that the decision I make, God will bless me with. And I'm not talking about sinful decisions. I'm talking about should it be blue or green? You know? Okay, let's, let's go to the text then, since I think we are ready. Um, let me just, just preface this by saying, now, the, the disciples had received the mission, right? They're going to be taking this kingdom to the ends of the earth. They're waiting for the Spirit. They're in the, the room, and they are praying, right? And during this prayer meeting, it seems like something comes up in the mind of Peter. They're still busy waiting, right? And the text says, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for this wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Gory it is, right about Halloween. It's interesting how it all just flows together, right? Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, which means field of blood. 
4 said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Now, I have, I've often wondered, obviously what we have here is we are, we are told the work, the consequences, and the death of, Jesus, of, of Judas. That's essentially what's happening here. So as Peter is reflecting, they're having prayer. He's reflecting on Scripture, which is interesting. He goes to Scripture, and Scripture directs him where? Scripture directs him to Judas, which is related to the situation that they find themselves in. Because now they've got a mission, but they've lost one of their missionaries. So something needs to be done about this. And he gives a little bit of an indication of what was the story with Judas. And so I, I've been wondering, have you wondered, like, what is the big issue with Judas? What was the big issue with him? What is this big crime? And why did the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders of Israel need him? Now, I, I went to go look at the Greek word because the, Peter says here that he was a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was a guide. That word guide in Greek is hodegos, which means a leader of the way or a teacher of the inexperienced and ignorant. I suspect the Jews struggled to arrest Jesus. They struggled to arrest him. Now, I have to go think about this because nothing clearly illustrates this to us. But when I look at the life of Jesus, it was very difficult to grab a hold of him in public. Sometimes for two reasons. You'll see sometimes he disappears among the crowd. At other times, you see the, the text says, but the, the Pharisees feared because of the people, the crowds. Jesus was in the middle of the crowd. And they couldn't just arrest him because they would lose popularity with the crowd. And you know that they were all about how the people viewed them. People loved Jesus. Here's the guy. He's changing people's lives. And we want to come arrest him and throw him into prison. That would cause problems. So that's the, the one side. So they, they struggled to arrest him in the day, but Jesus was a slippery character at night as well, wasn't he? It's difficult to get a hold of this guy. I mean, they didn't have, um, you know, some trail cams and things they could put in the, the corridors of Jerusalem. Sometimes Jesus would sleep at, uh, stay on the mountain the whole night. You don't know when he's going to be on a mountain, when he's going to be in the Mount of Olives. Sometimes you'd be friend, with friends in Bethany, right? At one point, he's two months in the wilderness. He himself said he doesn't have a place to go lay down his head. He didn't have a residence. He didn't have an address. He was like a South African. You wouldn't, get, you wouldn't be able to get post to Jesus. He didn't have an address. So he was a slippery guy. They couldn't get a hold of him. They wanted to arrest him at night to avoid the eye of the public. And I think that's where Judas came. And I think that's where they, they realized, hey, we're not going to catch this guy unless we can buy one of the inside guys. If we get one of the inside guys, they'll be able, he'll be able to direct us one night and we can get to Jesus um, in a way that would be easier for us. I think that's where, where Jesus comes in. Now, there seems to be a discrepancy. Because when you go to Matthew chapter 27, a different story is told. Matthew tells us that um, Judas, he had this 30 pieces of silver, right, that he got as payment to deny Jesus. And then he um, realizes that Jesus is condemned. In other words, he's going to die. And suddenly he has remorse. So he takes the 30 pieces of silver, he goes to the chief priests, and he gives them the money back. And they say, no, 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 no. this is not how it works. You've taken the payment, 
um, we don't want this money. So he takes the coins, he runs into the temple, and he throws it into the temple. That seems to be the text. The, the chief priest, then he goes and he, he runs into some outskirts of Jerusalem. He hungs himself. He kills himself. Suicide. Right? By the way, which is a very good argument, like uh, suicide is for another day. In any case, so um, the chief priests realize this, and they see what this, this money now has become blood money because he died. And there's some debate whether it's blood money for Jesus or blood money for, for Judas, but we'll leave that for tonight. And so they go by the field with Judas because they can't use the money. What do you do with it? Do you just bury it? No, why don't we just go by the field where Judas hung himself, okay? And that becomes a cemetery. And now I think, and you see that's sort of different to what we read here. But I think it's not a, it's not a big issue. I, I think we can merge the two stories. The basic truths are the same, I think. So what I think happened was this. I think it happened the way that Matthew said. I think it all happened that way. The only discrepancy might be that um, Judas is not the one buying the field, but it's the chief priests. But in a sense, it's the same thing because it's his money. That's buying the field. Um, long story short, there is this field in Jerusalem. It's called Akeldama. That's what it looks like today. There was a monastery eventually built there. But for 1,900 years, nobody lived there. It was a cemetery. It was a cemetery for non-Jews. What a horrible ending. That, that is what your life represents. Now, if you, if you look there, you can see it's pretty rocky. Here's another photo of what it looks like. What I suspect happened was there was probably a tree next to one of those cliffs over there. He hung himself in the tree. I don't know if wild animals got hold of him or whether the rope snapped or whatever it is that he used, but he probably fell down some of those cliff, cliffs. And that would account for what we read in chapter 1, that possibly, you know, his um, gut spilled out in that whole situation. It's, it's just a horrible it's a horrible scene. And I got thinking about this and, and wondering a little about it. And something came to my mind. Maybe Judas wasn't such a bad man. At least there was a sense of remorse in him. A little bit of a remorse. Like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize. And that's what seems to be happening here. He didn't realize what was really happening. Um, he didn't seem to expect Jesus to die. I think he was a gambler. I think he thought 30 pieces of silver. And that's where the problem is, ladies and gentlemen. It's the desire and the love for the money. That's what gets you into trouble. He said 30 pieces of silver. Jesus gets arrested and flogged and then released again. But then he realizes, oh my goodness, he's being condemned. Now I can't take this money. Now I need to give it back. And that's why I think it was so easy for him to throw away those 30 pieces of silver. Because now it wasn't worth it anymore. Ladies and gentlemen, money is never worth denying Christ ever. It's just not worth when it comes to the spiritual death of anybody. Peter is moved by the scriptures in this text to take a stand. If you go back, it says that he found this in Scripture. So while they were praying, Peter was in Scripture. He was remembering Scripture. He was dealing with the Psalms, particularly. He pauses in this room. He reflects on the Scripture, and he knows what to do. Sometimes when we don't know what to do, it's because we're not in Scripture. 
Peter trusts in Scripture because he says what the Holy Spirit had said through the mouth of David. He understood the idea that the text that we have has been written by the Holy Spirit. It puts it on a whole different level. I want you to picture this for a moment. These guys were used to Jesus being around them and talking straight to them. Now suddenly Jesus isn't there anymore. When Jesus is absent, Scripture takes all authority. And Peter understood that. In other words, there is no higher authority than Scripture. No church and no church leadership are above the text. Now sometimes you find yourself in a situation where a church places itself above the text. That's definitely the case with, with the Catholic faith. The Pope tells you what's right and wrong. The Pope decides what the church accepts or not. Based on his will and his way. That is so unbiblical. Scripture is even above the Pope. If I was, I would have been a horrible Catholic. I would be a horrible Catholic. I would go to the Pope and say, hey bro, I'm not going to kiss your toes, man, or your fingers. I love you. You know, if I was like a Catholic, I love you, brother. Hey, man, you're disobedient to Scripture, bud. That's how I would talk. Because he's not above Scripture. Scripture is above him. And we've got to be careful that we don't fall into that same line uh, of, of thinking. Anyway, let's leave that for another day. Let's look at, so, so, so um, Peter seems to reflect back to three Psalms. The first psalm is Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my friend in whom I have trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Jesus quoted the same verse um, while he was busy eating with Judas. You remember that? Um, so uh, Peter is reflecting on this verse as well. And then he reflects on Psalm 69 verse 25. Make their fortification desolate. May no one live in their tents. And there's sort of a, a twist there because Peter seems to twist this verse a little bit. May no one live in their tents. Referring to Judas. May no one live in the field where he is buried. But he makes this connection between the old psalm and the situation with, with uh, Judas. You see, Peter learned to evaluate current circumstances through what the Holy Spirit has written in the past. And then the third psalm is this one, Psalm 109, verse 8b, let another take over his position. And that's the key thing here. Um, Peter knows that the psalms refer to what happened to Judas, but also he knows that if the psalms was pointing forward to this situation they found themselves in, then also the psalms can teach them what they do, need to do next few hundred years later. So Peter looks at Old Testament scriptures to validate the events that have been known by the Holy Spirit to happen in their time. All right. In a nutshell, Peter reads the Psalms. He sees what has happened is true and it was prophesied about. But then he comes across Psalm 109 verse 8 B and he realizes, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit actually wants us to have another disciple. We need to fill his position. That's why the title of this lesson is 12, num the number 12. The Holy Spirit wants there to be 12 apostles. Why? 
You figure it out. Twelve tribes of Israel, it seems to be just God's number. He wants twelve. Okay? Now, let's read further. Therefore, it is necessary, verse 21, to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. And so, Peter is sort of laying out some category. These are the boundaries, right? It has to be somebody that's walked with Jesus the whole time and that witnessed the resurrection. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Witness there, remember what the word is? Martyr, the martyr. We need somebody else that would die for Jesus. <laughs> That's when I put my hands down. I don't know if I'm going to go on this mission. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's hearts. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. And so he was added to the 11 apostles. Do you see how they made a decision? I think both of these guys could have probably worked. But they wanted God to make this decision. Do you have a lot machine? Do you play the lottery? You need to start playing the lottery. It's in the Bible. You need to make some money. This is such a sad story for me. The 17th previous verse we read says, Judas was part of their number of the apostles and that he was part of the greatest ministry on the planet. Isn't that incredible? What an honor for Judas to walk with the disciples. The prophecy of the psalmist contains the word, guess what? For position, the word position in the Septuagint is episcopae. Now there's a Greek word in the New Testament usually translated episkopos, which refers to what? An elder. That's the position that, um, that's associated with the role that Judas had. He was an elder caliber type of person. That's incredible. He was part of the greatest ministry on earth, equivalent to being an elder. I mean, to put it in language that we understand. Like a true servant, a shepherd-hearted person. Okay? An elder, a superintendent, or a person in charge. That's what the Greek word means. And he had an opportunity to become a martyr for Christ. And he gave it up for how much? 30 pieces of silver. And the prayer is interesting for me. Look at that prayer. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Now that's a whole sentence, but in the, in the Greek, there's one word there. And I love this. Cardio gnostes. Cardio, art, right? Cardiologist, cardio. Gnostes, knowledge. God is the knower of hearts. This is a word that we can ascribe to God. He's the knower of hearts. 
And the knower of hearts, this is where it gets complicated and difficult. The knower of hearts chooses Judas. He chose him three years before this. How do we make sense of that? I don't. Was he a good guy three years ago? That he became bad through the process? Or did Jesus know you're a bad guy, I can see your heart, but I'm, I want to use you in any way? That will be a nice Bible study and discussion one day. This is scary for me when I bring this together. The knower of hearts appoints an, an elder type missionary that betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. God can choose you, use you, elevate you in his ministry, even though he knows you will never go to heaven. Yo, that puts me in my place. That humbles me. God can choose you, use you, and elevate you to a position in his ministry, even though he knows you will never see heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, search your heart. Examine yourself. A new person needs to be chosen. Scripture says a new person needs to be chosen. That's the task that Peter has. It needs to be done. But the scripture doesn't say how. The Bible says, says be generous. It doesn't say how much or how often. We could make, maybe make an argument for that. The scripture says love people. It doesn't always say exactly how in your specific situation. And so they've got a problem. We need to choose somebody else, but we don't know how. The other guys were chosen how? By Jesus himself. But Jesus has now left them. Jesus wasn't there anymore. They didn't know the hearts of these guys. So they consulted God in the parts that they could not see. Lord, we can see the physical person, only you can see the heart. So we'll do our part. You, please help us do the rest. So they reverted back to the old Jewish way of doing it. They narrowed it down to two guys. And what I've read up a little bit about how they would cast the lots is that they would have, they would, in this instance, for example, get four little planks or four uh, little stones. And then they would write on two of them the names of the two guys, Matthias, What's the other cat's name? Matthias and Joseph. Right? So one, Joseph, one, one little plank with Joseph on, one with Matthias on. And then they would have a blank one. And they would have one that says apostle, for example. Then they would take those four. They would cast it into an urn. And somebody would potentially, without looking, go in and grab something out. And let's say he grabs out the word apostle. Then they've got one. And they grab out the other one. Then, and it says Matthias. Then they know Matthias is the apostle that God chose. This is ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, would you do that? But for us, it's strange. For them, it wasn't strange. The 12 tribes of Israel, the land was divided through what? The casting of lots. This wasn't a new thing. 
when they needed to figure out who sinned among the Israelites, uh, there's a few instances this way. How did they do it? They cast lots to find out who it was, to find the culprit, the sinner among them. Now, this is interesting to think about and go really debate about, but does something mystical happen? Is it chance when you do it that way? I really don't have the answer. But I think part of the solution lies in the prayer. And maybe this is my, and this is me speaking, I'm not founding this on scripture, but when I read this and I, I think about instances, if you go to God in faith and you say, Lord, I, I, I want to ask you, I don't know if this is the best job for me to take. I need your guidance on this. Can you provide me some sign? Like maybe saying, Lord, if they offer me a salary that's X amount, more than I anticipate, then I will know that's sort of a sign from you, this is a job I should take. I think that could be valid. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. My personal opinion. I think that if we, I think it's all about the prayer and not about the sign necessarily. It's what you ask of God. Isn't it true that the scripture says, ask me anything and I will give it to you. And if God knows that you want to walk in his will and that you'd like him to guide your life, help you to make better decisions, don't you think that he would? I think he would. And I don't think it's always necessary to cost lots. I mean, we could, I mean, then you're going to go through your life. Ah, ching chong cha. Flip a coin. Maybe there's validity in it. I don't know. I, in my opinion, once you've studied scripture, you need to make a decision. You've studied scripture. That's the first place you go. You study scripture. Number two, you get some advisors. You get some input from other people. That's what Peter did here. What do you guys say? Who can we nominate? Okay, so you do that. Number three, you use your mind, rationality. God gave you a reasonable mind. Make a list of the pros and the cons. Okay, and you pray about it. If you've done those four things, I guarantee you, you'll have an answer. That's my opinion. And I don't think it's necessary then to cast lots. I think they had a different situation here. These guys were going to be apostles. That's a different, whole different level than whether you should buy the greenhouse on the corner or the red ugly one next to Eugene's house. It all depends on your faith and your relationship with God. Um, so a few notes. The Holy Spirit wanted 12 apostles because I, I think that seems to be God's number. Um, secondly, there cannot be any more apostles today. Why? Because the text gives the criteria. An apostle is somebody who walked with Jesus. If anybody claims today to be an apostle, then I'll ask the question. Wow, man, how does it feel to be 2,000 years old? Because you didn't walk with Jesus and you didn't witness his resurrection. You cannot be an apostle. The text gives us the criteria. So two things to close off with, just in a, what, what I would like us to take home. Nothing and no one on earth can be trusted more than Scripture. I think this is extremely important. We live in a time where people don't take just the Scripture. We take a lot of other stuff. We don't take just the Scripture. And the difficult thing for us is we have to evaluate carefully is my belief system and the way that I view things based just on Scripture? 
was it based on what the church has told me for the last 40 years? Do I make my conclusions just on Scripture? Or is it a tradition that I'm holding on to? This is hard for us. And it touches each and every one of us. I've got to do this daily. Like make sure I'm following just what Scripture says. Why is this so important? Well, you're safe if you follow Scripture. You're safe in everything. The moment it becomes unsafe is when you add stuff to it. And you put in some traditions. And you don't evaluate yourself. Because you're going to act in tradition instead of Scripture. And then it becomes difficult for everybody around you. Because you're enforcing your traditions on others. Just Scripture. Then the Holy Spirit can work. And secondly, nothing and no one on earth know the heart of man except God. He is the cardiognostes, the knower of hearts. We are all sitting here. Each one of us have a heart. Nobody knows your heart except him. Don't worry if other people are suspicious of you or treat you funny. They don't know your heart. What matters is what he thinks, right? And in the same token, be very careful how you judge people. You don't know their hearts. You just don't know their hearts. Let's pray and then we can go. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this text that we could grapple with tonight. We, have, we still have a lot of unanswered questions. But I, I pray to Father as we grow and um, think about these things and compare uh, what has transpired in this text with other texts in your word and with our experiences in life, that you will, you will teach us your way. And that you will help us to trust in your spirit in combination with what you've written on the pages of scripture. Father, tonight there are so many that, that, that need you. Uh, Father, so many are struggling with various uh, health issues. Some of us, Father, struggle with some mental issues, some thoughts we have. I pray, dear Father, that you will liberate us. Give us peace tonight. May we have peace when we leave this place. And watch over us this week, whatever comes ahead. May we glorify you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week, guys. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>